enjoy driving. I enjoy long-distance driving, but one of the things I don't enjoy is that when you're driving and you sometimes go into a lower area of the country or the highway and a fog starts to set in and you're having difficulty seeing. And I want you to watch this video clip of such an experience. But, you know, we look at moments in our lives like sometimes if we go through life without a clear understanding of who God is. I really think it's like going through a fog existence, driving in the fog, not having really a, a clear understanding of God's character, what He's like, who He is, and how that should impact our lives when we live separately from the person of God and an understanding of Him, then we're going to have those kind of accidents going on in our lives. We'll be driving through the fog and having problems in relationships, problems with, with um, empty pursuits, problems of pursuing dreams, um, problems with different areas of our lives. But when we see God, and I don't mean some vision that people claim to have, but I'm talking about when we see God through the Scripture, through His Word, and we understand His character and His purpose and, and who He is, then it leads to us being on mission for God. It leads to us having a life of purpose, having a life of desire and drive. And that's what happens in the passage the guys read in Isaiah. Um, so I want us to turn Isaiah chapter 6 if you're not there. If I were to give a, a big idea statement of what I'm after tonight, vision of God leads to mission for God. If we could have a vision of God, and I'm talking about through his scriptures, and, and get a continual fresh glimpse of who God is in our lives, it's got to impact how we live on mission for him. So I want us to look at first in verses um, 1 through 4. We're going to look at seeing an upward look, and then we're going to have shaping an inward look, and then sent an outward look. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. We, I see in verses 1 to 4, in helping us, it really has to lay the foundation to when we get to that dramatic verse in verse 8, here am I, send me. What caused him to be able to volunteer and say, God, I'll go. I'll be that mouthpiece for you. I'll be that witness for you to the nation. What is it that impacted him to get to that point? And it's really verses 1 to 4 that we have to spend a fair amount of time in to look at what he saw of God. And it begins in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, it's not that Isaiah is just like running out of things to say. Well, let me just, because I'm a history buff, Isaiah says, I'm just going to tell you about when. No, there was a purpose to it. Uzziah was a pretty good king. And he lived for 52 years. But he dies. And all of a sudden, that security of having a leader, and it speaks in 2 Chronicles 26, how he was successful and prosperous. So having a leader doing a lot of good things suddenly dies, it's going to change your country and you're going to have a different different outlook and there are things happening in the world at that time that causes people to be a little bit anxious to be filled with ang some anxiety in fact if we were looking the world history at that time there's a guy to the east named Tiglath Pileser that's on the move and he's from the Syrian empire and he's a pretty wicked king he's brutal in fact the Assyrians are starting to look towards Israel, and they're starting to look in that direction. And this is what the Syrians would do. If you were captured by the Syrians, it's a real good chance that your, your eyes would be gouged out, 
If not, maybe your hand would be cut off or maybe they would do some other brutal thing to you. They were just a wicked, fierce people. And so there's nervousness. The king that led them has died. Put on top of that, Jeroboam the second over in Israel died a couple years earlier. So there's a lot of instability at that time. So there's tremendous political turmoil and unrest when God allows Isaiah to get a glimpse of who he is. In this setting, God comfort Isaiah. This is going on out there, and this is who is coming. But you need to understand, here's my throne room. Here is who I am. I am absolutely sovereign. I'm the one that's in control here. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Lord is not the name capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, but it's looking at a description of God. When it uses this word, Lord, Adonai, it's really the master the controller. So here is Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. I saw the controller sitting on the throne. This is really what he's saying. That when I, I saw the sovereign one. I saw the master. I saw the owner. I saw the ruler over everything sitting on the throne in this tumultuous time period. I mean, what a tremendous comfort that is to Isaiah. And it's starting to to shift in his thinking and make an impact and start to settle in on what God wants him to do. And he says, I saw this Lord, and he's sitting on a throne. You know, he's not some chump Lord or person, but he's on a throne. I mean, here, you feel the raw edge of his terror as he's brought into the very throne room of God? Isaiah stepped into the presence of the owner, the ruler of the universe. And he sees him all of his majesty in this description, the absolute sovereignty, the absolute control of God. And he sees God sitting on the throne. God's not doing this. He's not anxious. He's not wiping his brow because Tiglath Peleazar is on the move towards his people. God is in absolute calmness and control. Yes, God's about to pronounce his judgment on his people for their rebellious, idolatrous ways but God is in complete control, and he describes his God. He's high and lifted up. He's not like some little chump, Tiglath, running around amongst puny mankind. No, this Lord, this master controller, he's high and he's lifted up. It's not really the direction I want to go, but just to state as a P.S., this kind of understanding of God just gives us such such calmness and peace in our lives when turmoil comes, or at least it should. And I reference this by a picture I want to show you of Wes Jones. Brent and I visited Brent uh, West two weeks ago. Here he is. He was sitting up at the point we got him. This is actually from Ted. Um, but Wes Jones um, has all kind of wires running into him. At that point, he was on a, a, a machine. I think it's called a Coppella uh, machine, his heart machine keeping was beating for him because he couldn't do it on his own. Amazingly, he's being weed off of that. And he's doing well each day to the point where they believe that he'll be off of that as of tomorrow. But at this point that we're with him, his wife took me aside to the window and she showed me the machine that he had to get. That's not 
apparently the direction they're moving. But at that point, the machine, and it would be something actually hooked up to the bottom of his heart like a clamp. Is that what it looked like to you, Brent, a clamp? And then a tube going in, and he have a backpack on, and she whispered two to six years. But in the midst of all of that, what he said to me, I, I don't know that I've ever met anybody in the face of death so calm, so peaceful, and it wasn't a show. He says, I know that God's sovereign. We're all good. I know that God's in absolute control. So that's where this kind of knowledge, this kind of vision of God affects our living in a practical way. Verse 2, not only is God in this majestic person in absolute sovereign control, but he sees God as, as being revered by the seraphim, as a seraphim, these, these angels, and seraph means burning ones, as these creatures hover around God, the attendant one, the holy one, the eternal one, and they are worshiping him. Each seraphim, they had six wings, two they're covering his face, and I think that's probably referring to just their reverence or their all of God, that they don't want to look upon God and out of respect, just worshiping and bowing before him and hovering. And then with two wings, they're covering their feet. Maybe humility to cover their feet. And then there's two wings that it's, the word flew, it's continuous action that they're flying in every command that God has as they're covering their feet and their face as they're flying to carry out every command of the Lord, absolute reverence for God. These holy beings, these burning ones before God and the throne. And Isaiah says this glimpse of these perfect angelic beings in humility, giving reverence and adoration to the master controller, the ruler of the universe. Then he hears the words that's coming from the anthems of heaven. One to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I mean, picture in your mind these angelic burning angels hovering above the throne of God, responding to one another in this chorus going back and forth in beautiful angelic voices that we can just imagine of hearing, singing without interruption to the holiness of God. Now, there's a lot that they could have said. They could have said, merciful, 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 the Lord of hosts. Or they could have said, gracious, 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 or loving, loving. But they zero in on his holiness, his absolute holiness, perhaps the premier defining attribute of God in his holiness. These burning ones are speaking of who he is in his absolute holiness. You know, as I was working through this passage, I thought of loved ones that have passed on. I thought of them enjoying this praise right now in the heavens. George, I thought of your brother Tommy, one of the first people I met when I came here that passed away soon thereafter, or Sam Lamoth and Violet Lowton. Certainly thought of Bob enjoying this beautiful music in the heavens, Phyllis. And family members that each of us have had promoted into glory. They're enjoying this anthem of holy, holy, holy. The focus on the throne room of God as he sits there in absolute, complete control. To say that Isaiah was impressed with the holiness of God would be an understatement. 
Isaiah would speak more on the subject of holiness than any other book in all of the Bible except the book of Leviticus. He would continually zero in on the holiness of God. The phrase holy one, Isaiah would use it 30 times, and I think it's only used six other times in all of the Bible. So he was, he was enraptured. He was caught up in this vision that he saw of God and his holiness, God and his greatness, and he was moved by that vision, moved by the person of God. One individual defined holiness as this, that divine perfection of God which separates him from his creation. The holiness of God, that perfection that separates him. Included in this word of when we look at holiness is just God's absolute freedom and separation from sinful mankind. God and his holiness. And this is what Isaiah sees. 1 Peter chapter 1, 15 and 16 gives us a command as to our holiness and how we should live. And that verse reads, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all conduct. So it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. See, it becomes the foundation for how we live. How many of you have accepted Christ in the last two years? Anybody here? Enzo? Welcome to the family of God. Anyone else? Jean-Marc. Sweet. Not only for you, as you begin a new journey with God, is holiness to be your defining pursuit, but for those of us that have been saved maybe 40 years, 50 years plus, holiness is to define us. We are to be holy because the one that we are following is holy. So Isaiah, is, he's glimpsing at just the, the person of God, and he's seeing God in his, in his rever- being revered and his absolute sovereignty and his holiness. Then there's a capture where just the whole earth is full of his glory. He just doesn't want to keep it to the little throne, throne room. He puts out there, the whole earth is full of God's glory and just in who he is and his absolute amazing greatness. What is glory? What is God's glory? God's glory is really a revelation of his attributes. It's a revelation of his his being. By looking at the universe, we can just see the attributes of God. His perfections come forth in his absolute wonderful glory and greatness. Creation tells us of the incredible God that we have. Creation tells us that God is, is living It tells us that he's all-powerful, that he's personal. It shows us that he's infinite, that he's brilliantly intelligent. Creation shows us that he's wise, that he's good, that he's gracious, he's sovereign, eternal, a God of order, and on it goes. Just a couple pictures. This is just from our men's wilderness trip that we've been able to enjoy. Will, when I was looking at Algonquin, I I was going to put that picture up with you holding the shoe, but I didn't. But here we are in Algonquin, and we're canoeing, and we came across this majestic beast in the water. This is just just God's creation, his power, and what he's made. And just our little wilderness trips where we've gone around the United States gives us glimpses of God's attributes, God's characteristic. Here as we're standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking down in this incredible canyon that God made that God created, that God spoke forth. 
What an all-powerful God, an infinite God, a God of beauty, a God of order. Here as we stand on Angel's Landing, looking down behind us, of just in Zion National Park in Utah, just again of God's infinite creative power. The whole earth is just full of His glory. The whole earth just speaks forth of the glory and the majesty and the greatness of God. This is actually Yellowstone, Lower Falls, majestic Yellowstone National Park. You know, it has so much variety. It's just sitting on top of a, of a thermal volcano, and it's just ready to explode at any time. But just the pools and the colors of water, that just show God's creative beauty. But uh, when I get to my all-time favorite national park I've ever been to, Grand Tetons National Park, majestic, beautiful. It's almost like you just reach out and touch God and His greatness and His beauty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And just his creative power, the sun rising and the sun setting, and how he just paints the, light, paints the sky with his beauty, with his creative abilities. Or we think of Shenandoah National Park and its beauty, or you think of where we went to in, um, uh, Mount Katahdin. Uh, just God's creative power. So Isaiah is saying, God shouts forth. All of God's glory is just showing forth through who he is and his person and his being. The whole earth is just full of his glory. You don't have to go on these great exotic trips out west. I mean, we could just walk in our backyard and we look up into the star-filled night. And we see a great God that put it all together, that made all of this. In verse 4, the hymns sung by the seraphim, so majestic and powerful, just shakes the threshold. Isaiah's caught an incredible glimpse of God, hasn't he? In verses 1 to 4, he's focused on God, and we've gone through far faster than I really would like to, um, but we've focused on the attributes of God and God's character. And Isaiah is deeply moved by that. Holy, holy, holy. You know, we need that in life. I think it was this morning message. Do you use the word recalibrate? Calibrates, recalibrate. The holiness of God or a glimpse of God's person just recalibrates our thinking. We get so, or should I say, I get so focused on the temporal, but to look, pull the curtains aside and to step into the throne room of God, so to speak, through the prophet Isaiah chapter 6, and we get a reminder of who God is, it just starts to kind of recalibrate, shift my priorities from this puny little pursuit here. I mean, I was talking, John Mark, to Dave Rittinger this afternoon. He's still a big Buffalo Bills fan. But we were commiserating. What's it matter that the Buffalo Bills or the Eagles aren't in the Super Bowl? I mean, we'll forget next year anyway who was in it or not. The real priorities of life is, is pursuing God and who God is and getting a glimpse of him. And this is what Isaiah is doing here in this passage and just reminding us of God's attribute. Let me ask you, how are you doing in your walk with God in this area? Are you often, are we often recalibrating our thinking, our priorities, by getting a fresh glimpse of God and who He is? When was the last time you had a sweet, we sing the song, Hour of Prayer, how about a sweet 30 minutes of prayer, or, or, or had a sweet Bible time passage with God where you just got up from your knees with tears coming down your, your face, 
because you have just realized the sweetness of God. Or you've had that time of prayer and time has just run away. Say, Whoa, i got to get to work or whatever it might be. And you just have enjoyed him. Whether it be in prayer, whether it be in Bible study, whether it be just a walk out at night, you step out on your back porch and the sky is just so lit up and you just look up and you worship in prayer, end up singing a song of how great God is. This is what Isaiah verses 1 to 4 is calling us into. We need to be a people of his presence. If we're not a people of his presence, why or how can we be on mission for God? A vision of God will lead to mission for God. When I see who he is and all that he has done in his grace, I am going to be motivated to be on a mission for him, to pursue him, to say, God, here am I, send me. I want to look quickly through verses 5 to 7 and um, move on here. Isaiah now moves to, he's, he's visibly shaken by this glimpse of God. He is so moved that this inward, upward look, this glimpse of God, he looks inwardly and it's just shaping his heart and he cries out, Whoa! And he said, woe is me. It's interesting. Here is Isaiah, having caught a glimpse of God. If you look at chapter 5, there's whoa, 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 whoa. He's announcing five or six woes throughout the whole book. Judgment on you, Israel. Woe is to you. But now he has slammed the brakes on that sports car of his, got out and realized, woe is me. Woe I am. Because he realizes that his character the nation's character isn't lining up with God's holiness, with God's character. And he says, well, calamity is coming upon me. Calamity is coming upon us. He realizes his sinfulness. He says, I am lost. Woe to me. Not to anyone else. Woe upon me. I have been made to cease is what woe means. Or I am lost or I am cut off. The finite, mortal, fallible man has caught a glimpse of the infinite, immortal, infallible God. And he is shaken to the core by that because he sees what he is and how far short he is of this holy glimpse that he's gotten of God in the heavens. And he just says, God, I'm undone. I'm undone. My lips are... I can't praise like that. My lips aren't pure. What caused this statement to come about? What caused him to, to, to make this statement, woe is me, I am lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, by getting a glimpse of God? And what's the second thing? A glimpse of himself. So he's looked up and inward, and he realizes things aren't right. So he makes his confession. He's crying out. said, God, woe was me. You know what I love about this, this passage? Um, are you like me? We compare ourselves to other people. Is that a bad habit sometimes in life over the years we've gotten to? You know, we look at them. We look at other people and say, well, I'm not so bad. Look at how they treat their wife. Or you might say, look how they treat their husband. Or look at how they're raising their kids. Or look how greedy they are. But... But Isaiah doesn't compare himself with the nation. He compares himself with God. I've stepped in the presence of God. Woe 
is me. I'm in trouble. I'm unclean. And why is that? He says, my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now remember, historically, he's concerned about a king on the horizon, some little chump coming from the east, Tiglath-Pileser. But now he steps into the very throne room of the king, the king, the Lord of hosts. He says, I have seen the Lord of hosts, the one that is superior. All of a sudden, you know, he's not so bent out of shape over Assyria and what they might do because he stepped into the room of the very one who's in control, the very monarch of all creation. In seeing God, he realizes the distance between God and his sinful condition. He realizes the distance between God and, his, and the nation of Israel. Even the seraphim, the created beings, are holier than he is. And he cries out, God, please help me. He cries out for cleansing. Woe, woe, woe is me. And look at God in his graciousness in verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this is touch your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Here is Isaiah in this vulnerable state. He's before the perfect, holy, pure one of the universe. And he's feeling out of sorts. Um, what is that, that um, kid's book, the, the, the Emperor's New Clothes? Is that the name of it? Um, well, he's um, feeling he's not properly robed before the master of the universe, and rightly so. But look at God in his grace, what he does. He addresses the very area that Isaiah is feeling vulnerable in, in his mouth. Because he knows that God has called him to be a mouthpiece. I want you to go forth and preach to the nations what I've done. But he's now realizing, I'm not worthy. I can't do that. I have sin in my life. I'm not the vessel that I should be. I can't go forth and be what you want me to be. God, please. And God sends, it's symbolic, but sends a seraph with a coal to go and take care of the very thing that was unclean. As he touches the, his lips it's a really symbolically of forgiveness. God says, I am forgiving you. I am cleansing you. You are now healed. Now you're ready to be my mouthpiece. So if everything isn't falling in line for him to be that mouthpiece, he's had that upward look and he's realized who God is and he's been moved by it. He now has that inward inspection and he cries out to God for cleansing, for healing. And now the next part is, there's a talk in the throne room of God. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? You know, when I was looking at this, it never dawned on me before. Us is just a, it's a great passage to, to give defense, some credence to the triunity of God, because there's a talking in the Godhead, and it's an idea of, of, of um, um, equality. It's not where God's talking to a created being, Oh, who will go for us? No, there's, a, there's an allowance of talking with an inequality. Um, but there would be a lot more passages than that to prove. But anyway, he says, who will go for us? 
So there's talking in the heavens. And Isaiah now has seen this great awesome God and His holiness. He's been cleansed. He's been forgiving. And he shouts forth to God, 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 please, I will go. So here we have in this dramatic glimpse of God, he's realized who God is in his person. He realizes who he is in his person and the need for cleansing. God in his grace has changed him. Isaiah quickly volunteers and says, God, here am I. Send me. You see, he's gotten things right vertically. He's gotten a bigger glimpse of who God is. Can I pause for a moment? One of the things that I have done over the years, if you were to go into my office and look up in my Bible software or go to the book of Psalms, and I have it all marked up with a green highlighter, all the attributes of God. And I've gone back to that many times over the years. I just want to know who God is in his person and his character and his quality. I want to keep being reminded of that in every aspect of God, and it just gives a fresh assurance and challenge, again, to be a people of his presence. So here is Isaiah having stepped into the throne room of a God, got a glimpse of who God is and his holiness and his greatness, glimpse of who he is. He cries out to God, God, I am ready now to go be that prophet to the nation of Israel, to the nations that are surrounding us, and to declare your oracles no matter what may happen in my life. Here am I, send me. And he knew it wasn't going to be an easy ministry, but he was a man that was willing to step forth to be that mouthpiece for God. I have to ask of myself, and may I include you in that, are we in such a position to say, God, here am I. Send me. God, here am I. I'm I'm ready to be that mouthpiece for you. And am I Are you in a right relationship with God that you're walking in his presence, enjoying who he is and his characteristics and his grace and his sweetness to you and for that spilling over as your greatest desire and drive, I want to serve God. I want to be a mouthpiece for him. Are we walking so intimately with God that it really is our deepest passion? Um, This morning's message talking about what do you love? You know, what is on the center of our heart? What, is there an idol that's on that heart? Is it popularity? Is it sports? Is it money? Is it fame, position? What's the idol of our heart? Or is it that God's on the, idol, on the throne of our heart? God, I want to serve you. I just want to know you. Are we in that kind of position? Do we have a glimpse of him and allow that to drive us? Remember one man asking, what is it that, Actually, was, I was being interviewed in a, in a pastor position years ago. But what drives you? What are, what are the juices that get you, gets you flowing? What is it that drives you? If you were to be defined, this is what drives me. I just want to know God. I want to just share him with people because of his greatness, because of his awesomeness. I want to be used for him to just tell others of who God is. If you were to say, God, I, I, I have to admit, I don't yearn to share the gospel with, with others. Um, in fact, it's been <clears throat> X amount of years since I've even tried to share the gospel with anybody. 
And maybe you would say, I've never led anyone to the Lord. And yet I'm hesitant to put it that way because God is the one that works in the heart. But I am not hesitant to say, when have we shared the gospel? Um, get the vertical, inward look, and it's got to infect our mission. Vision for God has to lead to mission for God. I want to give you a closing illustration. It might take me five, seven minutes, and we might even be wrapped up a little early. Um, I know, George, I told you 720. <coughs> One of the neatest books I've ever read, um, I read it this past week. Um, any of you ever read, heard the story, the book Brushko besides me talking about it the last week? Brushko? Brushko is about a guy named Bruce Olson. Um, incredible. I, I'd have to put it at the top three. My top three would be maybe top four. Be Mueller, Hudson Taylor, um, John Patton, and this guy, Bruce Olson. Just incredible story. Uh, Bruce Olson grew up, Steve, in Minnesota. Um, and he, as a 14-year-old, had a great interest in languages um, he realized that God had gifted him in languages. He wanted to be a linguist professor. As a 14-year-old, he was learning Greek and Hebrew and Latin and was doing very well at it already. And he talks about in this book that he is lying on his bed one day. He has his Greek Bible, Hebrew Bible, and, and um, um, Latin text open. And he's asking the question, who is my God? And that's what's driving him crazy. But who is my God? He was raised in a Lutheran church, but it was absolute emptiness. And he says, I just was consumed with the question, who is my God? And he's crying out to God, who are you? How do I know you? And so this one particular eve, um, evening after school, his Bibles are open, his Greek, Hebrew, Latin. And he happened to open up the Gospels, and he came to Luke 19. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And that just resonated with him. God, God, I'm lost. But the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And he remembered a verse that he had memorized, Romans 10, 9. That if you confess with your mouth that Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And he said, at that point, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I want to read this quote I, I wrote down. I laid in my bed feeling amazed too astounded to move or even to think. I kept speaking to Jesus, knowing that he was there. Jesus was there. Jesus was my God, my personal God. I had just talked with him. Let me tell you, he never got over that. You read the book. Um, I would loan it to you, but my wife is reading it next. Um, but it's absolutely amazing. He never got over that, that truth. The next day, he went to his church, anxious to tell his friends, thinking that they all would congratulate him being on board. That's awesome. He tells his friends, and they look at him like he's some, some, some lunatic. What are, you, what are you talking about? The pastor came up and said, what are you guys talking about? And he told the pastor, and the pastor said, what are you, uh, you're a holy roller? You think you're better than we are? You were confirmed in our church. You already knew God. And uh, he continued to get that from his family frustration. He had a friend whose dad was a pastor. He started going to that friend's church and just growing in his faith. Um, and he didn't want to ask anybody for a ride. He would walk five miles even in Minnesota weather, winter. This one day he got home, 
The doors were locked. It was a winter blasted storm. His dad was upset that he'd gone to other church, and he said this would be the pattern many times. I would be locked out of my own home after church. So he walked back to his friend's home and stayed there for the night. But this one time he's at a, at a church um, missionary conference. He didn't know what a missionary was, but he heard this missionary speaking. And I'm talking about um, reaching people with the gospel. And he said, that's what I want to become. I want to become a missionary. So he says, God, I, I, if you're calling me, I'll give up being a linguist professor and go to missions. Then he saw a picture of the Motolone Indians, M-O-T-I-L-O-N-E, Indian tribe in Colombia, on the border of Colombia and Venezuela. And he said, that's the tribe I feel that God wants me to reach with the gospel. This Indian tribe had never, never, did I say never, have contact with anybody outside of their tribe. Um, they were a remote civilization. People that tried to get near, they killed them. In fact, look it up. Um, I was reading articles this past week, Texaco oil workers that got near, and they killed them back in 1961. Fascinating. Um, all that's... So anyway, to speed the story forward, you ready? He bought a one... No, let me... <laughs> he went to Penn State for a year. Then he went to the University of Minnesota because family problems, he needed to come home. Um, excelling in linguistics, but just not content. He said, this isn't the way to do it. He says, God has given me this burden. I have to go. So he started reaching mission agencies. They said, no, you got to get a Bible degree. you got to be approved through our, our organization and then go raise money for the... He just didn't want to wait all that time. So you know what he did? He bought a one-way ticket to Columbia as a 19-year-old. <laughs> 19-year-old with one way. Once he landed, all he had was $70. I'll not tell you about how quickly the $70 went. Um, but he met this one man, a, a national Colombian, eventually met an American doctor. The American doctor took him on one of his um, mission works. Not mission work. It was more government work to the Indians inland. And, um, but he said no one goes up there to the Matalones. No one. He said they're somewhere up there. But that's where his burden was. So eventually, in time, um, bought a mule, loaded the mule. The guy left him off. It's bizarre. I tell you, I'm reading it's like I just put the book. I said, you kidding me? He loads up the mule, goes towards where the Matalones Indian tribe is. We're talking about days and days and days. This is how deep the jungle was. He couldn't see if the sun was shining, whether it was day or night. Yeah. He's in the jungle just walking. There's not like a trail like this way to the Motolones or in three kilometers you'll hit a restaurant. <laughs> I mean, he's walking and walking and he's, he's lost and he's stumbling and the horse one time bucked him, I mean, the mule. Anyway, eventually, after a month, he gets to, I think it was a month, it might have been two weeks, he gets to where he, he sees some smoke coming from a distant hut. He backs off. He says, now it's getting pretty serious. He backs off, and he finds a trail. He puts much like um, the approach of the Elliots down in um, Ecuador. That was Ecuador, right? Um, he puts gifts on the trail. And one week goes by, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, and the gifts are gone. And then he puts more gifts, and there are other gifts there, but there are two arrows in the ground. And he was told, he'd done enough reading, that two arrows meant we're about to kill you. So he put gifts out, but he put the arrows down, laying horizontal on the ground. 
Eventually, he met the Matalon Indians by a spear and by an arrow into his thigh. And they came and captured him and dragged them off to their village. And he's oozing. He's coming in and out of consciousness. They throw him in a hut. And in the hut, they surround the hut. And they shoot arrows through the hut. But because it was thatch roof, um, thatch, it wouldn't pierce him. It would, you know, leave some wounds and cuts and bruises. Anyway, the story is amazing. They accepted him into their civilization he befriends this boy named Bobby, and over the course of a year, just praying how he could witness to them, Bobby comes to know Christ, which was the turning point. And he's discipling this kid that he's calling Bobby, discipling him, says, you need to, now he's learning their native language. By the way, this guy would learn, go on to learn 14 languages, um, Indian tribal languages. He was brilliant linguistically. And, um, and starting to put together um, a language and communicated to the Matalones. Um, just amazing how God used this one convert in, I'm not going to go there because of time. Uh, you could read the book. Um, but let me just read you. Um, this is what happened. Eventually, 400, okay, they, let me say the whole Matalone, it's estimated that 90% of the Matalone nation, over 300 miles in expanse, put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. 900. And the Matalones, I mean 90%, the Matalones were fierce enemies, the Yuko Indians. They warred, and the Matalones were the superior. What happened when they put their trust in Christ, their hearts were burdened for the Yuko tribe to reach them for Christ, and they did. And what the Yukos would say is, we saw your changed behavior which drew us to your faith. Um, this is a summation. It is stunning what this guy, God, used for, through one life. Over 400 tribal scholars would go on to graduate from Columbian high schools. More than 40 have university degrees. As of 20 years ago, more than 250 former graduates were dynamic tribal members in carrying the gospel into other, other parts of their area. Today, Matalone doctors and nurses staff the tribe's 24 health care centers. Um, a big thing that he was emphatic of we're not going to westernize them. We're going to keep them as their own traditions. And as of 95 or 20 years ago, all Matalone Indians and all their education always came back to their tribe. They weren't westernized. They weren't going into the cities. Um, today, Matalone doctors and nurses, uh, Matalone is the word agronomous, direct a um, dozen farming cooperatives, Matalone lawyers, advise tribal elders on legal matters. There are accountants, translators, Bible scholars, forest rangers. Um, the tribe was slipping away to extinction in the 1960s um, because of, of um, malnutrition, because of disease, and people were encroaching on their land and killing them, shooting them. Um, mostly it was people released from prison going far away from the government onto their land. Um, but today... Um, the Matalones have been given a 320-mile tribal um, territory preserve, all because of Bruce Olson. Bruce Olson would go on to become four close friends of Colombian presidents. He would speak at the UN. He would speak worldwide. Um, the Matalones would go on to, to um, speak 18 languages, reaching people all on their corridor for Jesus Christ. And on and on it goes. It is stunning to read it. My head spins. One person. But you know where it began? Where it began with him, it would consume him, 
Who is my God? That was the question that he wrestled with, that he had to come to grips with. Who is his God? Once he got that, he was all in for God. He would take a trip back to America for three weeks and come back. I mean, how he received money is just amazing. Um, Too much to say. Um, But for us, get the understanding of who your God is and what he's done for you. Let that sink deep in our hearts and souls. And we have to be on mission for him. We can't keep it to ourselves. For Bruce, understanding of God and being so moved by that to the point that he was willing to spend his life. And as of an 80-year-old, so that would put a couple years ago, he was still living in Colombia to spend his life for the cause of the gospel. God, may we have a greater vision of you and be sent on mission for you. God, thank you for the heroes of the faith like a Bruce Olson that give examples to us to be spent to, be, to live for you. God, we want to be on mission for you. We want to make a difference for you. We want to be used for you to tell others about Christ, to encourage one another in our faith, to get into the word of God and allow it to change us. God, we love you. We thank you for your holiness, that your glory fills the earth and it's filled our hearts. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Lord, dismiss. Be well, friends.